Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Gabriela Kachikova. Uh, she's an assistant professor, university in, uh, in Slovenia. It's called uh, Ljubljana. I probably mispronounced that, uh, but she'll pronounce it better. And we're going to talk about microplastics and her research. So, Gabriela, thank you for coming. Uh, hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How do you pronounce the university's name properly? Sorry. Uh, it's the University of Ljubljana. <laughs> Ljubljana, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Back, no problem. <laughs> well, tell me a bit about your background and how you got interested in microplastics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a chemist and uh, I studied chemistry and uh, environmental technology. And then I did my PhD on waste management, which doesn't sound really exciting, <laughs> but uh, it was a uh, it was a nice project, and uh, in one part of the project, uh, I had to set up uh, a landfill. So I had to put a waste into a pilot landfill, and uh, when I was putting on the waste there, there were actually a lot of plastics flying around. So then I start thinking, like, what will happen in the environment when they escape the landfill or wherever they are? And uh, actually, when I uh, completed my PhD, then I decided to focus on plastics and uh, microplastics. Actually, it was obvious uh, uh, choice for for future research. So it's actually, yeah, I would say, well, my uh, research on waste management. What happened with the uh, the landfill? You modeled a landfill. And did you look at leachate, or what was that project about? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was about, uh, actually, the first idea was to uh, find a way how to uh, treat landfill leachates. And uh, I was trying different methods and combinations and uh, how to make it and different new approaches and enzymatic uh, treatment. And then I actually realized that it's it's almost impossible. (laughs) The leachate is so polluted that it's really difficult to treat it. So then I was thinking like to switch 
uh, into what about to change the uh, the waste the waste management. So how to how to do it differently? How to landfill better or uh, somehow that the leachate will not be so polluted? So um, because um, there was really a big change of uh, waste uh, waste composition over the last years because we started with sorting of waste. So the waste the composition of the waste is not the same like 20 years ago. So this was the idea to see what will happen with the leachate when you will use only a residual waste. So then it was the landfill was about like one cubic meter big. And then I put the waste there, the residual waste, but still in the residual waste, there was a lot of plastics because you just cannot recycle everything. So yeah, then actually it was interesting um, with the residual waste, when you don't have any organic waste, if everything is properly separated, the leachate was not very toxic. It was uh, it was actually much better than the traditional way when you mixed all the waste together and put it to the landfill. But anyway, landfilling is landfilling in general is not an option. But uh, it was interesting to see that when you change the composition of waste, then uh, also the leachate it's not so dangerous than before. Oh well. Uh- Good question too. What what were some of the most dangerous components to have in in a landfill that caused you know extremely toxic leaching? Oh, I think if if this is actually the problem of uh, inappropriate waste uh, composition. So, for example, like I think like 20, 30 years ago, there was actually not a lot of knowledge what we can landfill. So, we were putting basically everything, also batteries. So there were like heavy metals. Or there were also a combination of industrial waste because they were just putting municipal waste and industrial waste together. So uh, there could be a lot of uh, a lot of uh, dangerous components. Uh, but this changed a lot with uh, <laughs> with law, with changes in law, and also with the education that people they know what to put to the uh, bin for for waste. So I think now you cannot find so many uh, dangerous components in uh, in. Uh, in waste in general, but you know to think about sustainable, uh, sustainable living, uh, landfilling is really the last option because uh, then it's uh, the material is lost, and then anyway, uh, landfilling it's a way how to bring the waste uh, under anaerobic conditions. So it means that the methane is produced, and if you don't capture all the methane, then it's going to the atmosphere, and it's making problem as CO two. So I I think it's. Okay. It, yeah, it was. I think it was good to see that with uh, proper waste separation, you can do a lot. But anyway, it's not the way how we would like to treat the waste in the future. All right. And then moving on to microplastics, you noticed that there was microplastics swirling around. So how did you end up researching them and what's your research about? Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, I was um, the beginning, I heard about um, microplastics in cosmetics and I was kind of shocked because then when I wrote the first paper, then I had it turned back home and then I checked my cosmetic products and then I was really shocked that there's like microplastics almost everywhere. So I started like just to um, see what is inside and with the characterization. So first I dissolved the products and to go to the idea how much of microplastics is there and uh, what is the composition and the particle sizes. And then I wanted to know more about uh, if it is important source microplastics for the environment. So I was working on uh, um, wastewater treatment. So how many microplastics can be 
uh, accumulated in uh, wastewater treatment plant and so then how many of them can actually enter the environment. And this was also uh, very interesting to see that uh, for our cosmetic products, there was <laughs> really a lot of microplastics uh, coming through the um, wastewater treatment plant. Well, in, in wastewater in wastewater treatment, when they go through flocculation, mm -hmm. do they put anything in there to take microplastics out of the stream? Or do waste treatment plants not even recognize that microplastics are in there? Because it depends, again, on the law for each country. So uh, in some countries, you have uh, requirements for a high-quality effluent, so they have more treatment steps. And microplastics can be removed. So it depends on the treatment technology. Uh, if you have the conventional biological treatment, so first you need to have uh, some screens to remove uh, bigger particles in general, like uh, small pieces of wood or stones or whatever. And then there is a primary uh, settling tank, and then is uh, then you have the uh, biological treatment. So you can remove basically like from 80% of microplastics by the conventional system. The problem is that so many of microplastics are coming into wastewaters from from uh, synthetic synthetic textile like fibers or from the cosmetic products. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. So, and we are also... We are also um, treating a lot of wastewater. So anyway, even if 80% of microplastics is removed in the conventional system, then a lot of them is actually um, carried into the environment. If you have a special uh, advanced treatment, for example, membrane processes, or if there is also like coagulation and flocculation, then you can really remove almost everything from the, from the, uh, from the wastewater. Are there any countries that are processing wastewater treatment effluent to a very high level? Like, do you know if the U.S. is doing it or anyone that's piloting this? I, I think there is not really no law for microplastics, um, for example, that you would have effluent limit for uh, wastewaters. Uh, for example, how many microplastics it can contain because still the monitoring, it's really demanding, it's really difficult. And I would say that most of the time we do it during our research work that People are, our researchers are interested in um, efficiency of wastewater treatment plants, or they are uh, focused on the stages where it is removed and what is the fate of microplastics in a wastewater treatment plant. But uh, I think there is not like requirements for wastewater treatment plant regarding microplastics. 
It depends on the country what are their requirements for the effluent in general, and usually they are focused on organic uh, compounds, they are focused on uh, nutrients. So if they have some special additional treatment, for example, the last step is membrane uh, process, uh, like ultrafiltration, then they can also remove uh, remove microplastics. But in general, um, for example, here in Slovenia, it's uh, the primary treatment and the secondary treatment with, uh, with biological uh, activated sludge. And then now there is uh, for several years new law to remove nutrients, but they are not... Um, law against microplastics are that uh, we would have um, a law to treat the effluents that they would not contain microplastics or that there would be just uh, a certain number of particles. So what are the effluents of wastewater treatment plants look like? What kind of microplastics end up in the water? Is there a lot of fibers? I mean, where do they come from and what are they? Yeah, so there is a lot of fibers because always when you do laundry, uh, and you have synthetic clothes, there is a lot of fibers and fibers generated. And then from cosmetic products, but now I think it's less because in many countries, uh, the ban against uh, on uh, microbeads in cosmetic products was very efficient. And also a lot of companies decided uh, not to put them into their products because there was a big pressure from, uh, from different groups, uh, NGOs, they were really against and it, uh, this really helped a lot. So actually, our cosmetic companies, they decided not to put them there because uh, they realized that consumers, they will not buy the products because they were really aware of the problem. But um, in general, fibers and then whatever people uh, just put to the toilet and should not be there and it's from plastics. Because uh, when uh, like plastic bags or items uh, are going through the switch system, then they can be disintegrated into smaller uh, smaller particles. So these are uh, microplastics that can then appear in the wastewater treatment plant. And also those, they can go through uh, some of them and uh, to be in the effluent. So what is your research focus on? Actually, I'm working on strategy, uh, strategy phytoremediation strategy to remove microplastics uh, from uh, from water. Uh, because uh, in one of my earlier research, uh, I was investigating uh, interaction of microplastics with uh, aquatic plants. It was in uh, year 2017, because uh, until 2017, there was uh, some, some research on microplastics and interaction with uh, animals. Usually, um, researchers, they focus on ingestion of microplastics and what will happen in, in the organism, in the gut. Um, but that time I worked also with the floating plant, duckweed. It's very widespread. You can see it basically everywhere floating. And then I was thinking when microplastics are floating, so uh, how, what will happen when they will meet the floating plant? And it was very interesting. There was some effect on roots. But more interesting was that uh, the microplastics, they actually attach uh, to the surface of the plant. And then I got the idea that maybe it the microplastics can attach to the plant that we could collect them by the plant. So uh, these methods are called phytoremediations. So we are using plants for um, cleaning the environment. And uh, I have been working on this topic for last, um, yeah, six years, let's say, uh, last three years more intensively with my PhD student. And uh, now we got really interesting results that uh, we can collect by the plant, like with one planting about 20, 25% of microplastics. So we are now in 
more in the modeling how this could be uh, efficient for uh, natural environments. So it's really exciting uh, because I'm environmental engineer, so I was always like trying to find the solution. Uh, when I was working, doesn't matter if I'm working with uh, landfill or if I'm working with microplastics, I was always like, it's great to have to understand the processes and to have the description, but even better it's uh, to find the solution for the problem. You're studying plants that attract microplastics. Do they get integrated into the body of the plant when it's consumed? Or you're looking at the, uh, you know, the water that maybe is used in a hydroponic system. Like what's the, what's the context in which you're looking at plants mm -hmm. and microplastics? Mm -hmm. So microplastics that we sample in the environment in general, they are uh, too big to be incorporated into the plant. So the plant uptake proceeds just for very small particles for let's say nanoparticles. So we are working more on absorption of microplastics on the plant. So the idea is that you have, for example, a lake uh, where you have microplastics and then you um, add the floating plant and during the growing season, it will grow. It will collect the microplastics. And also it's great to have uh, plants there because they can help with removal of nitrogen and phosphorus. <laughs> so it is a win-win situa situation because it is also uh, cleaning, cleaning the water from nutrients. Would this be like a floating raft of plants? No, they're very small floating plants that are, and they are floating naturally. So they're called. Yeah, because I was, I was picturing a uh, floating raft, but then I saw the styrofoam in my mind, and I was like, No, 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 that's no. not good either. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is just the plant. Uh, it is a floating plant. It, it floats naturally. It's widespread it's basically everywhere and it can it can just naturally be in, in the in the environment in uh, in uh, lakes or ponds so the idea is to to put the plant there it will float and grow and uh, <laughs> pulling the microplastics and then several times during the growing season you can just collect it so it's kind of like cleaning system uh, to to remove microplastics. But of course, then uh, we have to be aware of plant with, with microplastics. We have to do also with something with this. So there is one option to do incineration, or there is also option to reduce the amount of biomass with the microplastics by anaerobic digestion, for example. So. But we have to keep it in mind. It's not that the plant would destroy the microplastics. It is just an efficient way how to collect it from water surface. So what would you envision? Seeding a lake with these tiny floating plants and have them clear out you know, some of the microplastics and then harvest the plants and what? Concentrate them and burn them? Or what would this look like? Yeah, it would be like this. We have to then take care of the, of the biomass. But this is... Um, Using uh, using plant for removal of uh, of pollutants from uh, from natural environment from water like this it's it's quite common uh, but usually it was used for removal of metals for example because they can absorb the metal so but then always you have to collect the biomass and you have to get rid of the biomass so it is way how to uh, remove pollutants different pollutants from the aquatic environment that you don't have to. Because it's impossible, for example, for for lake to uh, treat the water, so you need to do it do it there, so at the place. And this is the way how it can be done. So, uh, what kind of plants are these that float and have? Do you have a setup, you know, at a local river where you're trying this or lake? Like where is no. this being demonstrated? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we started in a laboratory, so um, we have mainly in our laboratory results, and we are now working on the mathematical description of the process to understand it better. And actually, the next step is to uh, do a pilot pond and try it under natural conditions, because it can be a bit different uh, than in the laboratory. For example, you have also uh, naturally rain. So what will happen when this tiny plant with uh, attached microplastic will be under a heavy rain? So it's the question if the microplastics will stay attached or how it will be when there will be wind or more moving. We tried to simulate some moving uh, on the orbital shaker and so on, but it's still not the same when you expose it to the natural conditions. So under laboratory, it works well. <laughs> now let's see. This will be the next step. Uh, what does the lab setup look like? Oh, okay. Is it a flow system or what does it look like? Um, so we were working with two systems. First, uh, we did uh, the experiments in a beaker. So it is uh, like very small environment, I would say. Then the next setup that we tried, it was in a constructed wetland. So when we have, we have a laboratory constructed wetland, which is like, I think, one meter and half long and half meter wide. And then we have the floating plant there and then we release the microplastics. And then we were uh, evaluating how many of them will be catched by the plant. All right. So what are you noticing? Uh, do the plants preferentially pick up certain kinds of microplastics and not others? We worked on different microplastics and also natural uh, natural particles. We tried with polyethylene or with fibers, polyethylene terephthalate, and also with rubber tires. And we could see that this, this method would be the best for polyethylene because both they're, they're floating, the plant and also the polyethylene when it is uh, released from wastewater or from different sources initially. Um, it floats on the surface so they can the, the plant can easily catch it compared to uh, other types of microplastics that, that have a higher density than they are for some time on the water surface so they can be in contact with the plant but then with time they are actually getting like because of the water, water movement they are getting into the water body and then when they are there, the plant cannot catch them anymore. <laughs> so uh, we were quite successful with polyethylene. Compared to natural particles, the natural particles, they don't attach to the plant, which is um, probably because of the they have the same charge because they are both plants and also the natural particles, for example, from uh, cellulose, they are both a minus charge, so they don't attract to each other. So we have very good uh, results with polyethylene, which is good because there is a lot of polyethylene coming into the environment. Polyethylene floats uh, initially. So I would say that this would be a very good system for catching the fresh pollution, fresh microplastic pollution, with, which is coming from different sources. And because with time, we know that microplastics, especially those that are floating, they are exposed also to sunlight. And there is also with the water movement, there can be a lot of micro microorganisms uh, then attached on the particle and creating biofilm with algae. And then with increased density of the particle, they will the particle will actually disappear in the water body. And then it is also lost and the plant cannot catch it anymore. So... Um, the main idea is to uh, try to uh, collect the fresh pollution <laughs> uh, microplastics that are just 
uh, coming to the uh, natural water and uh, that we would collect collect them by the plant or the plant would stabilize them at the water surface and then we can collect them. What happens to the plants though? Are they ground up with the microplastics or how are they processed? Mm-hmm. Um, they even- reused maybe cleaned and reused or is the plant incorporating some of the microplastics into itself so it's integrated into the plant? It is attached to the uh, leaves and to to roots. So it is not incorporated, but we tried also different procedure how to evaluate uh, the strength of the interactions. And they can be also very strongly attached to the plant. So uh, it stayed with the plant. But we were running also really... um, long-term experiments like for 12 weeks and there was not any effect on the plant initially it is uh, affecting roots but after eight weeks the plant adapt so in general the plant that we selected the floating duckweed it is very good uh, model plant because it is not affected by microplastics and the attachment for polyethylene or the interaction with polyethylene is very good so this was I would say very good combination because you always have to be careful with the phytoremediation methods that the pollutant is not killing your uh, plant or your organism that you want to you, you want to use. So uh, with polyethylene and with microplastics in general, we were lucky that the plant can survive and can adapt also to the presence of microplastics, and therefore it could be uh, really uh, useful for the collection of microplastics. But biologically, what's the sheet size? You said earlier in the podcast, um, a lot of the microplastics you've seen are too big, maybe to have biological effects. But what is in sweet spot? Is it like one micron or less? I know like inhaled particulates, I believe one micron size is a bad size because they tend to get lodged in lung tissue. But what about a biological system and microplastics? What's been observed? Uh, we are working with microplastics uh, that are um, just the... I always call it environmentally relevant microplastics because um, I uh, always search for microplastics for research and microplastics for monitoring. So we always prepare our microplastics that we are using for experiments that are environmentally relevant. So it means that they have the size, the shape and the material that uh, has been found in the environment. So um, all our experiments were with microplastics that are about 10 micrometers in average um, size, about 100 micrometers, because they are the most abundant in the environment. And uh, these are like attached, and maybe I would say that they are working with sizes up to one millimeter, because it's also something that it's, I would say, the most abundant fraction. But when you have smaller particles in nanometers, then they can really get into the organism and then affect it. But like this, with the plant that we were testing, it's um, it was okay. All right. So, I mean, I know that there's um, even down to nanoplastic size, but you don't see that that's a large fraction of microplastics in a given like aquatic system. It tend to be around, you said like 100 microns and up. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's very difficult with nanoparticles, nanoplastics uh, to monitor them in the environment. I think I think there are not even methods now for it because uh, it's even very difficult to get uh, information about very small microplastics, about one micrometers. Uh, you imagine that you have a net and then you are you want to collect microplastics, but you weren't collecting everything, algae, uh, whatever is in the, <laughs> in the water body. So 
it's then really difficult to recover microplastic of bigger sizes. So these very small sizes and nanoplastics, it's almost impossible to get information about how many of them are in the environment. And I think we will need a better development of uh, analytical methods uh, for for identification of uh, nanoparticles, nanoplastics uh, in a natural environment. Because so far, methods that are used for characterization of microplastics, they can get down to one micrometer, but not lower. So even if you sample something and then you think it's a nano nanoplastic and you see it, for example, under electron microscope, so you can see nanopart- nanoparticles. You don't know if they're plastics or if they're some other uh, other nanoparticles. So it is it is really difficult. And uh, I would say most of the research now on the nanoparticles is by using uh, industrially produced uh, nanospheres because those are um, easily to obtain to uh, to buy them. Uh, but if you want to have um, like nano fragments, it's much more difficult to to get them for your research. Well, what is the size limit that you've seen analytical techniques can can observe microplastics? What's the smallest size that's reasonable right now? Well, I think it depends on the uh, analytical method. But uh, for example, the typical analytical methods that are used for uh, identification of uh, microplastics are FTIR or Raman. Uh, so those, I think they can go to one micrometer. So you can be sure that the particle that you can see is actually plastic particle because you are getting the information from the analytical methods. You're getting the information about the chemical composition. So if you sample them in the environment, I think you are sure about <laughs> particles one micrometers and, and larger. For smaller, I think it's very difficult and maybe some uh, special research is going on now on how to get to smaller uh, sizes, but it is not something that would be common in microplastic research. Okay, well, very good. What's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, so uh, I have uh, a web page, which is called Plantarastics. <laughs> it is uh, from my initial work, uh, Interaction of Plants and Microplastics. And uh, we have also uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram with the same name. And uh, we are quite active because um, I think it's really important to share the knowledge about uh, microplastic research and plastic waste management in general. Uh, because uh, microplastics and uh, plastic waste that we really don't want to see uh, in the environment, it's actually uh, a result of our actions because plastics, they don't naturally exist in the environment. We are responsible for, for microplastics and plastics in the environment. So it's really important that, that people understand the problem. And this was actually very nice um, to see when I, me- when I mentioned about uh, microbits and how people refuse to buy products with, with microbits, with microplastics. I think this was a very good example of how awareness can really change a lot. So we have very active uh, Facebook, Instagram, and web page. So it will be great if people would check and interact with us. And if there are like questions about microplastic research, I will be always happy to, to answer them. Very good, Gabriella. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know it's late night for you, but again, thank you. <laughs> No problem. Thank you very much for the invitation. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. 
Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.